We're going to hear a reading now from God's Word from the book of Genesis, from the very last chapter of that book. If we had something to be afraid of, this chapter might have something to say to us. The scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 50, verses 15 through 26. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph said in Egypt, along with all his family's family, he lived 110 years old and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children, also the children of Maker's son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the Israelites swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. What do we do now? I don't mean in the worship service. I mean, that's a question we sometimes ask. And if you like old films, old movies, you have heard that question asked at the very end of a movie called The Candidate, Robert Redford, right? Guy who's uh, running for Senate, doesn't really expect to win, isn't really trying to win. And uh, as it turns out in the end, yeah, spoiler alert, if it if came out in 1972, I don't feel bad at all. <laughs> Um, he wins unexpectedly, right? And so the last couple minutes of the movie feature Robert Redford looking kind of panic-stricken while everybody's trying to congratulate him. And he pulls his campaign manager aside. And in about 30 seconds of privacy before 
uh, a horde of reporters descend upon them, he just says, Marvin, what do we do now? So after that moment of victory comes this uncertain future and, and the terror of what it means to step into that unknown. Um, if you were one of the Israelites who had followed Moses out of Egypt, you would have had that same kind of moment. Following this great victory, a moment of fear about an unknown future. Why? We might have been saying things like this to ourselves. You know, here we are, this puny little nation that's just endured 400 years of slavery. We just barely escaped from one powerful enemy. And now God is leading us through the wilderness, through hostile territory, to pick a fight with multiple other enemies that are more powerful than we are. How's this thing going to go? How's it going to turn out? Like, maybe we just got lucky this time, and maybe our God's not as powerful as we think. And what's going to happen on the day that we find out that there's a force in our world stronger than he is? Can we count on him to be faithful? What's it going to be like to leave one land for another when the land we're going to has far fewer resources than the one we just left? We might be afraid if we were those people who followed Moses out of Egypt. Those are the people that the book of Genesis was first given to. The book of Genesis was given to people who are afraid, to people who have a lot of reasons to be afraid. The book of Genesis was not given so that people could have uh, Bible memorization contests. The book of Genesis wasn't given so that we could, you know, memorize all the begats and know who was whose father and who was whose mother. The book of Genesis was given mainly to people who are afraid to say to us, there's something about our God and His grace that reaches out to us right in that moment when the fear and the terror grips us. Let's learn about that this morning. Let's see what God has to say to us in this book when we are afraid. So if you weren't with us last week, you uh, might have missed it. We're, we're starting a new series where we're going to go through one book of the Bible every week. So this morning's sermon is going to be approximately seven hours long. <clears throat> no, we're going we're gonna to try to capture what is the heartbeat of Genesis in just a few minutes. Now, how do we do that? Well, we start by recognizing who did God first give this book to? And why did they need it so desperately? If you were full of fear, it might help you to hear a story that begins with the notion that your God made the whole, whole universe. He's in control of everything. You don't need to be afraid of anything. That's how the book of Genesis works. The book of Genesis works by saying, first of all, God knows that we live in a world where there's a lot to be afraid of. And we're going to capture that just by looking at these final words exchanged between Joseph and his brothers. It's a principle called end stress that in a lot of literary works, the very end of the story 
will tell you some of the most important themes of the whole story. So we're going to look at the very end of Genesis and hear God saying, don't be afraid. Well, what is there to be afraid of in the world that you and I live in? Let's just read. Verse 15 says, when Joseph's father's Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. Wait a second. We live in a world where death is a reality. We live in a world where sickness and disease and decay are realities. Uh, The very last verse refers to the fact that Joseph is placed in a coffin after being embalmed. Why do you embalm bodies? Because... Because death and decay and the grief and sorrow and pain that come with them are just a part of our world. That's the kind of world we live in. If you think that the Bible is a fairy tale uh, written for people who live on some spiritual plane whose feet never really touch the ground, listen to what God is saying right here, right now. He is saying, I know you live in a world where death is a reality. Fairy tales... Get rid of that reality. This is no fairy tale. God is speaking to us in this world where we have a lot to be afraid of. And one of the things we have to fear is that life will come to an end. What else is there to be afraid of? Let's read our way through verse 15 some more. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back? Um, one of the things we have to be afraid of in this world is that the evil things we do will come back to us. That the wickedness, the ways in which we hurt other people, we will one day have to answer for that. Now, in this case, the brothers are afraid of having to answer to Joseph. But if you understand Genesis all the way back to to chapter 1, what we're doing here at the end of the book is saying, ultimately, we're all going to have to answer to the God who created us. So we have something to be afraid of there, that we could do things so evil that there would be no way to to get rid of them. And we would have to answer to our Creator for them. That's something that ought to make us tremble, unless we are living in that fairy tale world and not taking seriously the realities of, of the kinds of pain that we've caused. Now, you might say to yourself, hey, I never, <laughs> I never faked my brother's murder. I wasn't like these bad guys, you know. Jesus says differently. If you hate your neighbor, you've murdered your neighbor. That's not my word. That's the word of Jesus. I did it yesterday. Out working in the yard with a neighbor and uh, um, kind of gruff. Neighbor peers over his fence and fusses at us for what we're doing. Not a happy thought in my mind at that moment. Like, you know, give me a break. I've I've been swinging a pick for four hours trying to chop up a dead uh, tree stump and, and its roots. And here I am being fussed at because I'm killing a tree. It's already dead. It's already dead. And if you weren't hollering at me from... A hundred feet away, maybe you'd know that. And, and how quickly hatred for a neighbor wells up in my heart and in yours. And we, we live in a world where there's plenty to be afraid of, including what's just beneath the surface 
of our own hearts. Let's keep reading. Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead. They said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? You and I live in a world where other people can do terribly wrong things to us. And Genesis is a story that just shows that at every turn. It's a world in which not only can we do terrible things to others, but terrible things can be done to us. We have reasons to be afraid. What are you afraid of? We're all afraid of change because every time something changes, we lose something. We lose a feeling of safety, security. We lose a feeling of familiarity. If the change is grievous enough, we lose a lot more than that. If the change involves the death of a loved one, then we're losing that relationship. If the change is extreme enough, the loss is profound. And then after the loss comes the pain, right? We fear change because with change comes loss, and with loss comes pain. And so every one of us is afraid of something. We're afraid that something in our life will change so drastically that the loss can never be healed. What is it you're afraid of? Whatever you're afraid of, here's what God is saying to you today. I know, I know, I know that you live in a world where you have a lot of things to be afraid of. And you are not alone. And I am not unaware. I am with you. I know the world you live in. I know the things you fear. And I want to do something about them. So here's the second thing that, that God is saying to us through Genesis. He's saying, I know you live in a world there's a lot to be afraid of. But I'm promising you that you don't have to be afraid. Where in this text does God promise anybody they don't have to be afraid? Well, in this text, it's Joseph who says, don't be afraid, right? Verse 19, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Verse 21, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. God's not promising anybody anything here, right? Wrong. You see, if you read through the whole of the book of Genesis, these are the sixth and seventh times you've heard somebody say, don't be afraid. And all the other times, it's God coming and saying, don't be afraid. So there are four main characters that fill up most of the book of Genesis. Chapters 12 through 50, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And in chapter 15, verse 1, God comes to Abraham and he says, Abram, Abraham's name hadn't changed at that point. Do not be afraid. I am your shield and your great reward. Abraham's having a hard time trusting God's promises. And God says, I know you live in a world where it's hard to trust my promises. But don't be afraid. I am your reward. And then a few chapters later, in chapter 26, he comes to Isaac 
And he says to Isaac, Isaac, don't be afraid. I will be with you. Isaac is having a hard time just making ends meet. Having a hard time finding enough food and enough water. Enemies all around him. And and God is saying, I know you live in a world where it's hard to make ends meet. But don't be afraid. I will be with you. And then in chapter 46, he comes to Jacob. And not only comes to Jacob, but, but he comes to Jacob and says these words when Jacob is in exactly the same town where Isaac was when God said to him, don't be afraid. And he says, Jacob, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I know your whole world just turned upside down, Jacob. You just found out that the, the son you thought had been killed by a wild beast is still alive. And you're going to have to pack up everything and move from the promised land down to Egypt to survive this terrible famine. Your whole world is being turned on its head. Jacob, don't be afraid. I know the kind of world you live in. I will be with you. I will go with you to Egypt and I will surely bring you back again. And then we come to chapter 50 and we hear Joseph saying, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For the Lord your God will surely come to your aid. Do you hear what's happening? For a people who had lots of reasons to be afraid, God is saying to us, you don't have to be afraid. Now, this is not, you don't have to be afraid, uh, you know, in the sort of, I'm in elementary school and I think there's something under my bed variety. Right? Mama! you turn the light on why there's something under my bed there's nothing under your bed you don't have to be afraid so God's not coming into our room in the book of Genesis and saying there are no monsters under the bed God is saying yes there really are monsters under the bed yes you really no okay not literally I think all the people who were small enough to to think I meant that literally left the room for children's worship so I just want to clarify that Right? God is saying there really are lots of hard things in this world. And many of them will happen to you. Remember what Joseph said? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. Awful things will happen in this world. God is not saying, oh, if you pretend hard enough, all that will go away. He's saying, I will never leave you no matter what. And in the end, I will put it all right. That's what God is saying. You don't have to be afraid because in my grace... I am going to redeem what is broken. I am going to put it all right. How do we see that happening here at the end of Genesis? What we see is a man who's beginning to do what human beings were created to do. Joseph is beginning to reflect the image of the God who created him. 
He is a merciful, forgiving person. He has every right to wipe out his brothers. But just as God did not wipe out the human race after the sin of Adam and Eve, so Joseph refrains and he forgives and he shows mercy and pardon. Why does Joseph do it? Because that's what God is like. Not because Joseph is awesome, but because God is awesome. Joseph reflects the forgiveness and the pardon of our God. And then he says, not only am I going to forgive you and pardon you, I'm going to provide for you and your children. Where did Joseph get that idea? He knows his God. His God is a God who continues to bless and provide even even after our rebellion against him. He continues to say to us, every plant on the face of the whole earth, you can eat it. It's yours for food. He doesn't withdraw that gift because of our sin. He remains faithful. He is with us. Joseph is reflecting God's generosity when he says, I will provide for you and for your children. And then notice what Joseph is doing according to verse 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is a God who wants life to flourish. Read Genesis 1, and you'll see. Before he makes a fish, he makes an ocean for the fish to swim in. Before he makes a plant, he makes land for it to grow in. Before he makes people, he makes oxygen, air for us to breathe. Before he makes a bird, there's a sky for it to fly in. God provides for life to flourish. And here's Joseph reflecting the image of that God by saving many lives in a time of famine. So what are we hearing from God in the book of Genesis? I know you live in a world where there's a lot to be afraid of. But I will be with you and my grace will go with you And one day I will raise up a Savior who faithfully, perfectly bears my image and reflects my heart so that life could flourish again for all eternity. I'm going to send another Savior and people will do evil things to him and they will mean it for harm. But I will redeem it. I mean it for good it's one thing to be afraid it's another thing to be afraid and broken hearted because you're hopeless afraid that the things you're fearing will never never be healed I love Sherlock Holmes stories and we as a family have enjoyed watching BBC Sherlock series there's one problem Here's an episode in which Sherlock dies. Trisha and I had read enough of the stories to know that, you know, after he died by jumping off this great waterfall in Austria, he came back to life. He was he didn't really die. We knew that. So we knew this whole TV show was kind of leading us down this path and we, we weren't upset at all. We forgot to tell our kids about this. So we've come to love this hero 
Benedict Cumberbatch's version of Sherlock. And then we watch him plunging to his death and it ends. And there's just like weeping and wailing from all our kids who, who like, they didn't know the whole story like we did. They didn't know that the thing they were afraid of was going to be put right by the author of the story in the next episode. That's what God is saying to us in the book of Genesis. You have a lot to be afraid of, but I'm with you, and my grace will redeem. I will put everything right. When Joseph was sold into slavery, he didn't know the whole story. He didn't know how it would end. When Jesus was crucified, his followers, they couldn't believe that that story would have a good ending. God comes to us and says, I don't know where you are in the story right now. You may not be able to see the ending. You may not be able to trust that my grace will be enough. If you can't remember how the story ends, look at Jesus and see, I sent a Savior. I kept my promise to be with my people. I kept my promise to redeem and restore and put things right. And yes, many did things to Jesus and they meant it for harm. But my grace was more powerful. I meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. Trust the God who has given his son to put it right and trust him at the moments when you are most afraid. Jesus calls us to that same kind of trust when he calls us to the Lord's Supper. In the midst of knowing that much harm was going to come to him on the night he was betrayed, not unlike Joseph, betrayed by his own brothers. Jesus said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and do this in remembrance of me. The scriptures say that after the meal, Jesus took a cup. And he did something very similar. He gave thanks to God. And then he said, This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Drink from it, all of you, and do this in remembrance of me. And this is what the Apostle Paul tells us about that. He says that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's death. We proclaim the death of the one who died, but who now has been resurrected and is seated at God's right hand as the Lord. Every time we do this, we are eating a story that involves great pain followed by great redeeming power. Death and resurrection. If you need the death and resurrection of Jesus to survive, then eat and drink. If you're not sure about that, don't eat and don't drink. Because this is the place where we say through our bodies that we are trusting Jesus 
to be the one who answers every fear. He has gone through the cross so that we might experience with him resurrection. As often as we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes to finally put everything right forever.